Welcome to Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Emma Adjimung, Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and Rory McPherson, Head of Investment Strategy at Sigma Investment Management. The collapse of support services firm Carillion has wide-ranging implications, not least for its employees, the many public sector projects which it's applied, and its shareholders. But by and large, the latter group does not include most of the funds and investment trusts available to UK private investors. The few exceptions include tracker funds and exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, which track the FTSE All Share Index. Rory, what percentage of the FTSE All Share did Carillion account for? And will its collapse be detrimental to FTSE All Share trackers? Yeah, so I mean, I think the, the, the first answer to, to, that you're after is very low. So, you know, at the start of 2017, um, Carillion made up well, just about 0.05% of the FTSE, FTSE All Share Index. And then following the sort of three profit warnings they had, it had gone to, to, towards nothing towards the end of the year. So, you know, 0.05%, clearly it's a very small part of these trackers and passive funds exposure. So it doesn't really have much impact on their performance. Okay, so would you say that that's not really much of an argument then for favouring active funds over passive funds? No, I mean, I, I think, you know, with, with passive funds, you're always going to get exposure to everything. And of course, you know, as happens with stocks, you'll get blow ups from time and again. But the exposure is so small because you're so diversified to something like the all share. You've got 600 stocks that you're owning. So the exposure to something like Carillion is very small and is far outweighed by, you know, some of the positive stories that you've had um, that you own in a passive fund that maybe perhaps you wouldn't own in an active fund because for every Carillion that goes um, go, goes bust, there's lots of companies that, that are going to do very well. Okay. Now, uh, another exception is um, some of the infrastructure investments trusts. Um, now, these have been um, affected by Carillion's collapse in that they invested in some of the projects for which Carillion provided facility management and now they're having to put in place providers that will emphasise that they didn't own shares in Carillion. And some of the um, investment trusts affected are Hickel Infrastructure, John Lane Infrastructure and International Public Partnerships. Will this form of exposure, albeit not direct, have a detrimental effect on the returns of these trusts? Clearly, it's, it's, it's not good news for, for, for these trusts being associated with Carillion. But it is, you know, you make an important point. Their exposure to Carillion, the company, is actually zero. And, you know, these trusts do have contingency plans, plans in place. Their share price performance has actually been fairly solid um, since the news around, the, around Carillion broke earlier this week. Um, so I wouldn't draw too much from that. I mean, the trust generally have been, the sector has been under pressure um, over the last year and few months in particular following um, the Labour Party conference and you know the, the view from John McDonald that they'd be um, nationalising some of the PFI and um, international public partnerships that have been so beneficial to, to those types of, of companies and form a big part of their, of their asset base. Other than recent rents at Carillion and 
those comments made in the autumn. What are the prospects more generally for infrastructure investment trusts focused on the PFI and PPP schemes? If you take the um, political risk, which I think is very much in the price now, I think the prospects are actually pretty good. Um, you look at the trust that you mentioned and their yields are attractive. So, you know, yields are in the region of sort of four and a half to five percent. Um, you know, in a world where kind of cash rates are going to be about 0.5% at best and bond markets, government bond markets will give you less than 1.5% in the UK. There's, there's no doubt that that sort of yield is definitely attractive. And importantly, they were trading at big premiums a couple of years back. So, you know, sort of Hickel, John Langworth, up towards 20% premium to their, to their net asset value. Those have come back significantly as some of the bad news has been um, flushed out over the last sort of three months with Carillion and, um, and the Labour Party conference. So I would say the prospects for, for these types of assets look pretty good now. Could you go as far as to say that they're a bargain at the moment because they're on much lower premiums to NAV than in recent years? I wouldn't, I wouldn't use the word bargain because they're not trading at discounts to NAV, um, but I think they're now good value there versus or fair value versus you know a couple of years ago when with the big premiums they were um, no doubt expensive. Um, you know, I think I think one of the things that, that you have to be aware of when you're buying these types of assets, though, is that you're getting exposure to a very um, long life asset. So, you know, a lot of these projects that they're buying, the schools, hospitals, toll roads, etc., will be about 20 years life. Um, so, you know, the, the, the risk you run there is that bond markets and cash rates move up significantly over that period. And that seems a, a, a far reach at the moment. Um, but it's just, it, it, it's something to bear in mind. So I think you probably want a discount before you start banging the table and thinking you're picking up a bargain. Okay. Just more widely, do you think infrastructure is a good asset class to invest in? Yeah, I do. Um, I mean, I think it's, you know, like any kind of asset, it should be held in conjunction with other assets to, to spread out your risk. But with infrastructure, you're getting exposure to a hard asset, so a real physical asset that kind of has some proper value, um, has an income stream in the main, is, is going to be government-backed and has its revenues linked to inflation. So there's a lot that's attractive there. And I guess the question for investors is whether they get exposure through an investment trust, like, say, Hickel, John Lang, or whether they get exposure through a fund. And I think the real kind of sort of dilemma there is whether you want the liquidity of an equity fund or whether you want the underlying exposure of the hard assets that you get with a investment trust. Okay, so what um, funds do you like for accessing infrastructure? Um, so our favourite one is the rare global listed infrastructure fund, which is um, run out of the Leg Mason House, um, which is buying equity companies, so companies which invest in infrastructure projects. So it's global, so it's not necessarily tied to the UK. You can get your currency exposure hedged back to the UK if you wish. Um, but essentially, it's tapping into uh, regulated companies, so utility companies, and then the same sorts of companies as, as you'd be buying in, um, in the investment trust that we have in the UK market. But I guess the, the big difference is because the 
underlying stuff they're buying, the companies, the equities, are traded daily on a stock market. If you want your money out on any particular day, it's very seamless. You don't have the issues of discount, premium, and then the fact that the underlying money of the trust is actually tied up in, in hard assets. So I think, you know, for someone who's got a very long time horizon, say 20 years, a trust is absolutely fine. For us dealing with private clients in bigger lot sizes, it makes much more sense to own equities that we can um, manage inflows and outflows with much more seamlessly. Okay, thank you, Rory. Some really good points there. And you can see what other funds have exposure to Carillion in this week's magazine and the website. This week's portfolio clinic features a reader who wants to spend part of each year living in Europe and is looking to fund his travel with his pension savings. The problem is, however, that his pensions assets are denominated in sterling, but when he travels, his expenses will be in euros. Rory, in general, what can investors of sterling assets who face expenses in other currencies do to mitigate exchange rate fluctuations? Yes, there's, there's plenty of options. I mean, it's, it's a very nice problem to have for your reader um, looking to spend uh, a third to a quarter of his, his, his year overseas in Europe. But I think that the, the main things that, that you can do are, you know, the obvious one is to have your money in cash overseas. Um, you're not going to earn much on that, but you take out the currency risk. Other ways of doing it, and you know, it's kind of just inching up that risk curve, are owning government bonds or government bond fund denominated in the overseas currency, perhaps owning local equities, or owning equity funds which are hedged back to the currency where you're looking to spend your money. So in the case of Richard, your reader, it's spending his money in Europe, so he could perhaps own funds which are hedged back to the euro currency or own um, European equity funds. Okay, a number of options. And you say in the review that the reader should maybe move 50% of his currency exposure into euros via investments in European stocks. How do you suggest he gets the exposure to the European stocks? I would suggest buying either you know, a passive fund, which could be you know, one of the big providers, say an, an iShares or Lixall, which would do um, European exposure either um, straight into to, to, to euros or you, you could buy a global fund and hedge that back into euros or perhaps an active fund. So there's plenty of good European fund managers out there. You know, we like the Schroeder European Alpha Fund run by James Sin, the BlackRock European Dynamic Fund, also a very good one. So those would be the, 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 the sort of European equity funds we'd focus on. And then within the bond space as well, there's several good bond funds out there that are trying to tap into the European bond market. And, you know, as you'll read all know, you guys, there's been a huge um, amount of asset purchasing by the European Central Bank, which has benefited all of the, um, the European bond market. So something like the 24 Dynamic Bond Fund, which owns lots of European-type bonds, um, asset-backed bonds, in fact, um, is a very good investment to have as well, which with, with lots of exposure to Europe and the currency. Okay. Now, now buying a fund of a hedge share class sounds like a great idea, but um, you know, are there any issues that you need to consider when doing that? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a couple, and obviously, you know, it's a great idea um, and works really well if your currency strengthens, and then you sort of win twice, if you like, because you get the gain of the overseas equity market and you don't get um, wiped out by any 
losses that would get adjusted back by that currency being weak relative to your own. Um, there's obviously a lot of moving parts there, and there's some costs involved as well. So, you know, if you if you take something like uh, 2016 as an example, where for a sterling investor it was the best thing in the world to be unhedged because following the the Brexit vote, you had a massive devaluation of the pound. So any assets that you own, say in the US, for example, went up 20% or so by virtue of the fact that the pound had been weak. Um, clearly, that was a good envir- environment to not be hedged. And then last year, 2017, where the pound was strong versus the dollar, you benefited the tune of about 10% by being hedged, having your currency hedged. So if you'd like, with currency hedging, you win if your currency is strong. So I think it's something to factor in. There's probably a couple of decisions to be made. One, you know, is it very important that your spending is going to be in your own currency? In which case, that would be an argument to be hedged or at least 50% hedged, as I suggested to your reader, Richard. Um, the other one would be, is a weak currency a driver of that that overseas market's equity performance. So an example there might be something like Japan, which you know, benefits from a number of things, but one of them has lots of exporters, tends to do well when the yen is weak. So if you like, by hedging that as a sterling or a European investor, you win twice because if the currency is weak, you benefit by having your money in pounds or euros, and then you will also get the benefit of the stock market going up, and if you like, ramping up because of the weaker currency that's boosting those exporters. So that's the sort of pros and cons. In terms of the costs, this is something which is, um, it's not transparent and it's something to to be aware of. There are hedging costs which are sort of implied, if you like. Um, So if you're hedging back from a currency where the cash rates are quite high, you're going to lose out on that and then be investing it in your base currency um, cash rate, which in the case of, say, euro or sterling is pretty low. So if you like, it costs us about a percent to hedge back from somewhere with higher cash rates like the US for sterling investors to hedge back from places like Europe or Japan, where cash rates are negative or zero, um, we actually gain to the tune of about 0.5% a year. So there's a couple of moving parts there um, to, to be aware of when you're thinking about currency hedging. Okay, so um, yeah, a number of potential complications. Um, just in terms of accessibility, do many funds actually offer hedge share classes? Yeah, they do. Um, and increasingly so. I mean, if, if you look back five years or so, there was a real dearth of sort of hedge share classes available. And it was really only by going down the passive route um, that you'd be able to gain access to hedge share classes, you know, because there's a cost associated with, associated with active managers laying on a hedge share class. They've really sort of mushroomed in their in their availability. So there's much more available now. They're pretty widely prevalent. So, you know, if you were to look on a, a sort of fund database like Morningstar, for instance, there'll be a wide selection of um, head share classes available within the key regions and asset classes. Okay. Now you did also mention buying European shares. Um, is it a good idea for UK investors to directly buy shares listed on European exchanges? Yeah, I mean, I, I would I would say I have a preference for um, funds just because the risk is more spread out and 
it's un- you know, probably less likely that a UK investor is going to have specialist knowledge on the European um, shares and the, the, the individual shares. But that's not to say that it's impossible. And, you know, if, if people do have insights into those companies, then by all means, they can buy them. But, you know, for, for our clients, we prefer to access the fund route and let a sort of specialist who knows the market um, pick out what the best shares available. Um, but, you know, there's, there's, there's some sort of obvious benefits by buying European shares over UK shares. So no stamp duty, for instance. Um, so in terms of transacting, it's very straightforward. Okay, but I would add there, and I think it would be fair to say, wouldn't it, that um, there may be no stamp duty, but there might be other tax implications, and brokers typically charge more to trade foreign shares than UK shares. That's true, yeah. Now, you mentioned that European equities are decent value at the moment. Why is this, and how do they compare to UK equities? Yeah, so they're similar sort of valuation to UK equities, and... You know, they're, they're, they trade on about sort of 14 and a half times next year's earnings, which is a little bit dearer than, than the UK, but of a similar sort of um, valuation. And, you know, the, the reason for the sort of, I, I suppose, the attractive valuation has been one kind of company earnings have been really strong. So you know, every year analysts come out with what tend to be quite lofty earnings expectations. And last year was one of the first years in a long time that European companies actually beat analyst expectations. So they've got a really positive earnings story, lots of momentum there. So that's you know, a, a good sort of fillip for, for the valuation. And then importantly, they have reasonably low profit margins that are growing. They don't have wage pressure. Um, so it's a good environment. And then you also throw into the mix that you've got a very supportive central bank. So the European Central Bank is still spending 30 billion euros a month buying up assets and putting money into, if you like, asset price inflation, which is generally good news for the stock market. So similar valuation to the UK, um, but without the sort of domestic specific risk. Okay, Europe has its issues too, the election literally coming up in a couple of months' time. But um, but without the sort of um, the, 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 um, the headache of Brexit and what that might bring um, looming in, in, in front of in front of them, which the UK market has. Okay. Now, another thing that occurred to me was that many large listed UK companies derive a high proportion of their earnings from overseas. So would investing, say, in, I don't know, FTSE 100 stocks help to hedge currency risk without having to buy foreign shares or hedged share classes on funds? Yeah, I mean, it's it's... It's an interesting one. So, you know, the UK big market, so the FTSE 100, drives about 70% of the earnings from overseas. So it's a hedge, if you like, but I wouldn't say it's a currency hedge because with that type of investment, you're, if you like, winning when the currency is weak, which is the flip side of what you'd be looking to do if you were currency hedging. So although it sounds totally wacky, you could make a case perhaps for currency hedging your UK equity exposure because of the fact that most of it is overseas. Um, I think that's that's clearly going a bit too far. It just makes sense to um, buy overseas exposure and hedge that if, if that was the way you felt. But, you know, as a rule of thumb, if you buy those big companies, they tend to have most of their earnings overseas, which is why they were big beneficiaries um, in sort of post-23rd of June 2016, 
when Sterling devalued, you had the FTSE 100 doing really well and the more domestically focused FTSE 250 doing less well because much more of the currency exposure there is domestic. Okay. Now, other than currency hedging, you suggest the reader featured in the portfolio clinic diversifies his portfolio with non-equity assets, such as the shares of gold mining companies. Why this asset? Yeah, I mean, the the reader had quite a lot of exposure in um, equity assets, which obviously have been a fantastic place to be over the last sort of um, nine years or so. But, you know, it's important to own assets which are going to perform well if you get a shakeout in markets or if perhaps something comes through like a surprise in inflation. So gold mining companies are a good way to to tap into this. And, you know, you look at where we are with gold now, the gold price, it has stabilized at about $1,300 an ounce. It's a long way below the $1,900 it was back in 2011. We're starting to see inflation pick up, and okay, you know the UK numbers which came out this week for inflation, RPI above four percent, are pretty high. But generally, globally, we're starting to see inflation pick up for the first time in in, in quite a long time. Um, so that's typically good for gold assets because if you like, you know, the cost of holding other assets becomes dearer when inflation is is, is higher. So something that stores value is clearly good news. So that's really the the, the, the the case for throwing gold. Why the miners over the bullion, I suppose, is, is is an obvious question. And we just feel with gold miners, you get a bit more bang for your buck. Um, now, clearly, that can work both ways. But the mining companies have done a lot to shore up their balance sheet and stop spending money on unprofitable projects. So they're in a much better, um, much more financially sound than they were three, four, five years ago, when their capital expenditure level was pretty high. So they're in good shape. They're profitable at this gold price. And if you like, you get a a few kind of hedges in in your portfolio by owning them. If there's an event risk, you should typically do well. If there's an inflation shock or surprise, you should do well. If there's a strong dollar, and okay, you know, everyone's out now saying that we're in a weak dollar regime, but if there is a a strong dollar, then the fact they're denominated in dollars should also help you. And you know the, the other sort of flip side of that is because they're denominated in dollars. If it's a weak dollar, people will buy them more as well. Um, so there's a lot, a lot of boxes being ticked when you look at gold and gold miners at the moment. I feel. Okay, so um, how do you get exposure to shares of gold miners? Well, again, I mean, you can you can buy the individual companies. Um, you can buy funds or you can buy a tracker. So, you know, there's a few, few funds out there. We like the um, BlackRock Golden General Fund, um, which has very sort of good broad exposure and tends to focus on the larger uh, miners. Um, equally, you know, there's, there's passive options available. So, you know, the big providers, iShares, Lixor, will run um, passive exposure to gold miners where you're just getting broad expo- exposure to the gold mining index. Okay. Now, um, you made a, a good case for getting exposure to shares of gold miners. What would be the downside of investing in um, funds that give you exposure to the shares of gold miners? Well, I suppose you know the obvious downside is that you know, the gold price goes down. Um, you know, and, and that might be because um, 
we have steady growth without high inflation and people would rather hold stocks. It might be because there's a new store of value that comes along with the cryptocurrencies, perhaps, who knows. Um, but, you know, that, that's the risk you play with, a, with a, owning the, the gold miners. You know, from a capital perspective, they're in broadly good shape and much better shape than they've been um, in previous cycles. But, you know, the, the risk is that they're very much pegged into the gold price and they're going to be a sort of souped up version of what the gold price does. So if that's going down, it's going to be very difficult for, for these companies to um, make money and, and, and make you lots of money as, a, as an owner of the equity. Okay. Um, so what about um, commodities more generally than gold? Uh, have you primed to bounce back? Yeah, I mean, we're warming to commodities and they're an asset class that has been in the doldrums um, for quite some time. And in fact, you know, since the sort of trough of 2009, March 2009, they're pretty much the only asset class you can find where you've lost money. So, you know, why is that? I guess the, the obvious answer would be that you know, stocks, equities do very well on the expectation of growth coming at some point. And then when you actually start to have that growth, which maybe isn't too far away, when we get global synchronized growth and that's, that's all sort of embedded, then they don't have anything to rally on because it's all factored into the price. Whereas commodities tend to be very late cycle and because you're actually buying the underlying thing, be that the barrel of oil um, or the kind of bar of aluminium, that's going to be much more um, pegged into what the economy is doing and what economic growth is like. So that's the sort of dynamic of what drives them. From a price perspective, and it's difficult to value commodities, but they're looking about as cheap as they've ever been over the last 40 years. So if you really look at their price relative to, say, equity markets, they're as far stretched away from equity markets as they've been over the last 40 years. So sort of more pronounced um, than kind of in the, the, the dot-com dot com bubble or, or sort of early 70s as well. So from a price perspective, they're looking good. The growth dynamic looks quite good. And then the sort of final thing, which is a bit sort of nuanced and involves a bit of financial um, sort of mumbo-jumbo jargon, is the curves for the futures market are now favorably positioned, so you're actually paid to own um, the commodities future. So if you buy a commodities fund, and there's you know, some, some available on the UK market, so Threadneedle have one, for instance, um, and again, there's, there's passive providers, you're now getting paid to own the futures. Um, so that's quite a good dynamic and, and a bit more of a kicker for the case of commodities. Thank you, Rory. Some really helpful suggestions, and you can see his full comments on these issues in this week's Portfolio Clinic. Giving money to charity is a very worthy thing to do, and an added incentive is that doing this could also help those close to you. Emma, how can giving to charity help your friends and family? Well, Leonora, inheritance tax is becoming more of an issue for families, as if your estate is worth more than £325,000 when you die, your heirs will have to pay 40% inheritance tax. But if you leave money or assets to a registered charity in your will, this won't count towards the value of your estate for inheritance tax purposes, and there's no limit to how much you can give. In fact, if you give at least 10% of your estate to charity, your heirs will receive a discount on the inheritance tax they pay, down from 40% to 36%. OK, so what are the different ways you can leave money to charity? 
Um, there are three main ways. You can leave a fixed cash amount, known as a pecuniary gift, or you can leave other assets like shares, or you can give a residuary donation where you leave a share of what's left in your estate once other gifts have been made. Okay, so what do you need to consider when making a pecuniary gift? Sure, and that's when you're leaving a fixed cash amount. I mean, if you're going to leave a, a fixed amount, say £50,000 to a charity, that might seem quite a straightforward thing to do. But you need to remember that the value of your estate could be less when you die than at the time you made the will. For example, if in the last few years of your life you've needed um, residential care, that could be quite expensive and reduce your overall estate. And the fixed amount that you've put in your will could end up being a much greater proportion of your wealth than you had perhaps intended to leave. OK, so some things to bear in mind. Um, is there anything else you should do to make sure um, this goes smoothly, as it were? Yes, um, I think it's really important that you make sure your will is properly drafted so that your intentions are clear. And in order to do that, you probably will need to take legal advice. And generally, it's also a very good idea to discuss your plans with your close family so they know what to expect as the discovery of a large gift to charity could be a bit of a shock. Um, and in some cases, it has led to families disputes and wills being contested. So a very good idea to get that sorted first. So are there any other ways you can both help a charity and mitigate tax? Yes, there are. Um, gift aid means you can help your favourite charities by donating money to them during your lifetime and also receive tax relief. So if, if you're a basic taxpayer, gift aid increases the value of your charity donations by 25%, as a charity can reclaim the basic rate of tax on your gift at no extra charge to you. And if you're a higher or additional rate taxpayer, you can actually claim the difference between the rate that they pay and the basic rate on the old donation. So actually, for example, if you donate £100 to charity, it can claim gift aid to make your donation £125. But if you're a higher rate taxpayer um, and would normally pay 40% tax, you can personally claim back £25 on your tax form. OK, um, that sounds good. Um, what things do you need to consider when you're making use of gift aid? The main thing to realise is that in order to be able to make use of gift aid, you must be a UK taxpayer and have paid either income or capital gains tax in that financial year. And your donations will only qualify if they are not more than four times what you've paid in tax that year. OK, thank you, Emma. Some really helpful points. And also see our article in this week's Investors Chronicle and on the website for some suggestions on how to draft your will if you want to leave assets to charity. That's all we've got time for today, but you can read more on funds of exposure to Cabillion, mitigating currency fluctuations and reducing tax by giving to charity in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.